From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. Way back in June, 17 Jesuits from the U.S. and Canada were ordained to the priesthood. One of them was Joe Kramer, and like many of his fellow Jesuits, as the summer months wind down, he's preparing to start his new ministry as a Jesuit priest. Joe, though, didn't become a Jesuit at his ordination. He's been one for years, living and working with the Society of Jesus and its many collaborators. It's easy to forget that the word Jesuit is not a synonym for priest. There are countless Jesuits in formation, and of course, there are Jesuit brothers the world over. Jesuits, as priests, brothers, and men in formation, are still fully Jesuits, carrying on the mission and legacy of St. Ignatius, the early companions, and all of those who have followed in their footsteps. And so, today, Father Joe Kramer joins us on AMDG to talk about what his years of formation looked like, what it has meant for him now to become a Jesuit priest, and what he hopes for his own ministry and that of the society as he looks into the future. Joe has great stories to share about cross-country pilgrimage, ministering to those in prison, and working closely with Martin Sheen. If you'd like to learn more about the newly ordained Jesuits, check out the link in the show notes. And now, here's Father Joe Kramer. Father Joe Kramer, welcome to AMDG. Thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And we're, we're so excited you're here because you are uh, very recently ordained, right? Yes. Uh, it's a month. <laughs> a month. So we're recording uh, mid-July. So it's just a month uh, in June. You, you've been uh, trying this priest thing out. That's right. Um, but, but the funny thing about Jesuit priests, though, is that you've been a Jesuit for a long time, right? So what was it like um, kind of reaching this particular milestone, but still kind of just still living your Jesuit life? You know, it's funny because I've joked with some of the guys like, now that my formation journey has ended... <laughs> <laughs> of course, we all know that our formation journeys never really end, so I'm, I'm aware of that. But uh, there is a big difference in how you kind of look at, at, at your Jesuit life, your identity, when you uh, have been ordained. And a lot of that has to do with how uh, other people kind of welcome you, perceive you, address you. Uh, uh, you know, Not to have it sound clerical, which it isn't, but just suddenly you're Father Joe and you're not like that guy who's in third year theology school anymore. <laughs> There's no uh, special uh, designation for third-year theology, right? No, they don't. <laughs> no, it's not like, you know, um, brother to the third or anything. It's just like, yeah. am I still here? <laughs> so so talk to us about what, so how, what does that transition really meant for you kind of spiritually and personally? Because it is a, it's a big milestone. It's a big moment in the life of a Jesuit. Um, you know, for those who are listening who might be Jesuits or might know Jesuits or might not know anything about Jesuit formation, what, what has this really meant for well, you? you? Know, um, it's a great question because, you know, depending on the Jesuit you're talking to, you're right that the answer could be very different. You know, uh, in, in, in Jesuit world, guys who are ordained could go immediately back to studies. So they would still be students they'd be priests but they would be going on to get their phd that's not me i hope i'm done with my studies but uh you know often you'll go right to begin uh, your first assignment as a priest my first assignment is going to be in prison ministry but that doesn't begin until august so i'm doing parish work now which may not be something i ever do again as a jesuit so i feel like i'm having a very diocesan experience right now i'm the interim parish priest at the parish that I grew up in, in Richmond, Indiana. And so for what it's been like, uh, you know, it's been like getting thrown in the deep end, you know? 
I've done everything but a quinceañera so far. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And you really have covered the bases. Um, are there other folks there that like remember you from growing up? Has it been like kind of a homecoming or is it a very new community? What's what's that like going back to uh, kind of your roots? It's been a little of both. You know, there have been a lot of uh, parents of kids I grew up with who are still here in the town uh, where we were raised. And so seeing them again feels very much like a homecoming. There's also a lot of new people, new families, new faces. So you get a lot of people that you have to remember to introduce yourself to, they don't know who you are, and then people who've known you since uh, you were baptized. So it's a, it's a little bit of both worlds. Uh, That's a real mix. Yeah. Um, I, so I know you're, you're from Indiana, as you just said, yep. but you're a West Coast Jesuit, That's right? That's right. So tell me a little bit about kind of how did you meet the Jesuits? How did you end up entering um, through the West Province? Sure. I, um, you know, I, I met the Jesuits at a pretty young age. Uh, you know, I went to Catholic elementary school. We didn't have a Catholic high school, but we knew the Catholic high school was Brabuff in Indianapolis. As a kid, though, I, I didn't know anything about its Jesuit identity. I was on the speech and debate team, and we learned pretty quickly they were the best in the state. So that's how I sort of <laughs> knew about Brabuff. When I realized, because, you know, what I loved about competing against them was like we would wear our best clothes, but they were like in, you know, navy blazers and ties. They look sharp. And I'm like, you know, who is this school? They're great. My dad was like, well, they're a Jesuit school. And that word just really stuck in my head like, oh, that must be, you know, that must mean the best because they were blazers. They, they, Jesuits they, means blazers. That's what, I mean, these navy blazers and, and sharp ties and khakis, iron khakis. I remember that too, you know, having my mom iron my khakis so I could look, you know, uh, competitive with all these guys from Indianapolis. So that's how I first sort of knew about the Jesuits. I had the strange experience because, you know, I, I felt a calling to the priesthood in elementary school, probably around the sixth grade. And my dad took me down to Xavier uh, to kind of talk to a vocations person there about, you know, what the road to religious life would look like. So somewhere in there, I spoke to a Jesuit, but I might have been 13 or 14 years old. Um, I didn't ever really know Jesuits again until I moved to LA for work much later in life. And then when I began meeting them there, I met a lot of them and you know, they were all great. Uh, different lines of work, different fields, but um, it was in LA that I really got to know uh, the Jesuit world much more intimately and prayerfully. Um, and because I didn't really know there'd been this you know, long tradition of joining in the province that was where you grew up, um, and no one on the West Coast ever told me that had been a tradition. I just kind of started the whole application process in L.A. and uh, have loved every minute of being a, a West Coast guy. Yeah, I, I you know, I, um, I have two questions that kind of come to mind as you're as you're talking about. It. I think the first one, particularly as you're talking about, you know, joining in the West as opposed to, you know, where you grow up and the society, you know, the Jesuits being a global society. Right. So you're you're entering a global society. Um, what, so for you, as you were kind of discerning, how did you disentangle in your mind? I want to be a, a member of a religious order, a global society versus I want to be um, a diocesan priest, someone kind of really uh, tied into the local the local roots kind of as you know living the life that you're living right now as this interim interim pastor it's a great question you know uh the first priest who ever spoke to to me to the class i was in in sixth grade was from divine word missionary in epworth iowa so that's the only place i've been told in this country that you study to become a missionary priest so there was always that piece of me that was like oh that's the kind of priest i want to be i want to go abroad i want to help people in other countries um, I never really knew that there were orders or what they were known for. But when I started looking into, uh, you know, the real possibility of religious life, I sort of went through the vocation website, wrote down all of the addresses, organizations, and I just started calling them for information. You know, could I talk to someone? 
And that included St. Meinrad, which is where the guys study in the Indianapolis Archdiocese, where I'm from. Um, and I was like, hey, I'm thinking of becoming a priest. And the first question they asked was like, how old are you now? And I'm like, I just turned 42. And they were like, yeah, we kind of cut off. I forget what it was, 30 something, but not even 40. And so, um, you know, I could very easily have been on the diocesan path if they had been like, come down this weekend for a retreat. But the Jesuits were eager. They were like, you know, let's get you a spiritual director. Why don't you start coming up to LMU for mass? The masses you might enjoy most are Sunday morning because they're, you know, packed with, you know, people from you know, the LA area, but also kids going to LMU. And I found that a very, um, uh, very prayerful place to, to be on Sunday mornings. So the Jesuits got back to me, you know, <laughs> otherwise I might very well have been uh, on a diocese because now that I'm back here in my home parish, people are like, so why can't you stay? And I'm like, St. Myron's thought I was too old, I guess, you know. <laughs> I know you, I, aged, you aged out of the priesthood in Indianapolis. Like. <laughs> That's, That's funny. Right. You know, I, that, that, that's such a good point. I mean, I know this uh, isn't like a vocation promotion podcast, but sure. I, you know, in all the work that we do, um, talking with with uh, you know your kind of fellow Jesuits all around the world, even the importance of, of just for any vocation, not even went to the Jesuits, is having someone respond to you and, and engage you in conversation, a real flesh and blood person is like the key, right? To, to any sort of vocational discovery is having like a real conversation with a real person. I absolutely agree. Although I will say it's interesting that, uh, you know, when I think about, you know, my own vocation journey, it was having like a real person, flesh and blood in our classroom, exciting us with what it was he was there to talk about. When I do the occasional retreat with men in discernment these days, I'll say, so who are some Jesuits, you know, who have you met? They've all read Jim Martin, you know, and loved mm -hmm. his books. But, you know, they go to like beajesuit.org and they watch the videos and they and they listen to the podcast and they get interested and they kind of feel like they've met people. But um, there is a virtual component in, in 2020 something that was not true right. for me in the 80s. I mean, you really did try to go find a person. And with fewer Jesuits, we can be harder to find, you know, flesh and blood. But with the help of the Internet, you can get a variety of life stories that... Uh, can be really informative on a vocation journey, I think. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a it's a there's a lot of ways in, right? A lot of ways in, but you ultimately um, yeah, being able to connect and share those stories is is so important. It, for sure, like our provincial had a video. I'd never heard his vocation story. I watched it, you know, on one of the Jesuit websites, and I'm like, oh, I learned a lot from that. <laughs> I gotta I gotta go through and watch all these videos. Yeah. So um, so that can be helpful. Yeah. So so let's get into a little more to your vocation story because obviously you 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 got south to L.A. You got out of California. Um, what brought you there? What were you doing um, that that brought you to L.A. in the first place? And then how did you end up kind of colliding with Jesuits in that in that work? Well, that's a good question because it does speak to what really put me on the, the final path to, to this lifestyle. Um, I went to school in Michigan and uh, was an English major at Hillsdale College. Uh, Shakespeare was my interest. I got very lucky coming out of school to find a job at the Shakespeare Theater at the Folger Library in Washington, D.C. Um, and my boss, who oversaw the theater, was also uh, an acting teacher at Juilliard in, uh, in New York City. And after about a year and a half in the job, he became director of the drama division and two of the things he wanted to do that were new was start a directing program and a playwriting program and he asked me if I wanted to move to New York and and run the playwriting program so I, I jumped at the chance I moved to New York I lived there for 15 years working at Juilliard and loved the work and what brought me to LA from New York where I probably thought I would spend the rest of my my life uh, because I did like the work that I did um, 
was an invitation from Martin Sheen to uh, help run his production company at Warner Brothers. So I moved to L.A. and uh, he had just finished making The West Wing, but his son Charlie Sheen was making Two and a Half Men, also at Warner Brothers. So the family together had a... um, uh, uh, a production company. And I think what may have gotten me the job was he and his son, Emilio Estevez, were working on a film called The Way yeah. um, that they had just started. And I had walked the Camino de Santiago with my cousin Jane. And the fact that in an interview I could kind of um, talk about not only the religious component of making a walk like that, but the challenge they were having at the time was the movie was like nine hours long. I mean, <laughs> it really was like a, a walk to, to Santiago. And I'm like, oh, yeah, so obviously you need to edit this movie. And they're like, but what do we leave out? I mean, every every stop on the way is interesting. And that's true when you're actually walking the way. But when you're in a movie theater, something's got to go. So we were able to kind of, you know, dive into this big conversation about, um, you know, how you make a movie that's no longer than two hours out of a 500-mile walk. And uh, I got the job. So I moved to L.A. and uh, it was uh, about three years of, of loving that work. But when Martin went on to um, Martin Sheen went on to make some other uh, film projects, uh, my work was mostly with Charlie Sheen. And when his job ended kind of abruptly, I suddenly had all this time. I'd never lost a job in my life. And uh, our production company closed. And I'm like, I should go on a retreat and just see what God wants for the future. And I didn't see the Jesuit thing coming at that moment, but it, it, it began a process of discernment that uh, led me to the, the whole process of applying and being where I am now. That's so crazy. The, um, I mean, do you, I'm sure like now, as you think back, it, just what you just did, right? You think of your vocation story and you think about Martin Sheen and the movie, The Way and the community of Santiago. Um, and, and it, it flows so <laughs> organically. It's beautiful. So cool. But like in that moment, the idea that you're kind of using your, um, kind of creative skills and like editing and kind of, you know, writing skills with Martin Sheen, which is right off the, off the West wing. So cool. Um, talking about something that's like very spiritual. Did that, did that come together for you in the moment? Were you thinking then like, wow, like, I, I can see how all these pieces are moving, or is it really now just all these years later as you're reflecting back? Absolutely not in the moment and and totally now looking back. You know, now it's like, oh, I can see the path. You know, I, I wish I could see the path a week ahead of where I am right now, you know, <laughs> but it's only in retrospect that some things begin to make sense and you see how the spirit's been working. To be honest, when we were talking about the way, I'm not even sure that I always felt uh, as much a spiritual um, participation in the conversations. Like Martin loved to talk about, uh, for example, uh, his son Emilio didn't want so much religious stuff in it, but you know, Martin was fighting for a scene where like the guy's handing out rosaries and everything. It's like, Joe, what do you think? And I'm like, I think you need to get to the next scene, you know? So <laughs> I, I, I was, I was definitely more about like, let's make this movie uh, as, as good a movie and, and not have it, uh, linger in all of these interesting spiritual questions that were ones that interested Martin and and, and would have made it a, a longer movie for sure, or um, certainly a bigger version in the director's cut if there was one. But uh, it's only looking back that I just realized that, you know, in all of those talks about the film, thinking back on the Camino, uh, considering that faith journey, that a lot of that came into those first conversations I had with Jesuits in spiritual direction about possibly applying um Looking back, uh, starting my the writing of my spiritual autobiography, it all was kind of good, good material, but none of it connected for me at the time. You know. Yeah. Well, and, and you're even, you're kind of leading into it now, talking about your spiritual biography and all these kind of key elements of Jesuit formation and, and, and entrance into the society. So, you know, what role has creativity played in your own spirituality? How how is that? Um, helping you encounter God, maybe in ways that are surprising or ways that, um, you know, aren't kind of obvious to other people. 
Yeah, you know, uh, again, another great question because I'm a big believer that, um, you know, God is a creative God. God's a God of surprises. And, you know, to the degree that you can sort of meet God in places that, um, you know, there are openings for God to come in. So, I, for example, I've always been a big journal writer since I was like in middle school. Um, every day I write in my journal, but I always try to kind of ask myself a question every day that, uh, might not be a, a question that I ask myself every day. And and at that period of time, after my job ended at Warner Brothers, I, I really was asking, you know, what does God want for me in my life? What might that look like? And I would kind of sit and, and think about it and, and write ideas down. Like, you know, I could move back to Indiana. I could go back to New York. I could pick up where I left off at Juilliard. I could, you know, go to Europe. Uh, and just as I was writing down different ideas, I just realized that uh, all those different scenarios included one of the first thoughts I had when I felt a call, which was, how could I help other people? Like, like what would a helping component look like if I assisted? And, and, and the Jesuit um, kind of call to social justice when, when I would meet more and more Jesuits really spoke to me. So um, I, I found that just uh, creative conversations, creative journaling, uh, bring that into prayer, all of that definitely kind of kept the convert, kept the question feeling alive to me. I would say, yeah, you know, and I think also listening to you describe um, your journey, I, th I think it's tempting for people to think like, oh wow, he worked with Martin Sheen, he worked at Warner Brothers, he had these cool things, and he left all that behind so he could be a Jesuit. But that's not it yeah. at all, right? It's always it's it's a it's a deepen like a deepening engagement with with who you are and who God's inviting you to be in a, in a community of of people, right? That's how how do you think about that? Not not a leaving behind, but but what? No, I think that's that's a that's a wonderful way to put it because I have never, even at like my most sour, looked back on anything and thought, I gave up this, I gave up that, I want my bungalow back in Silver Lake, you know? And there's just <laughs> never been that feeling of of wishing anything back. It's always felt like a building upon and that's not to say you don't still arrive at places going, okay, I see how I got here, but is this really where I want to be? Or is this where I imagined I might be? Especially as I have friends who at my age are starting to retire, who are thinking about what their later years will look like. I mean, I'm going to be starting a nine to five job in less than a month and there's no retirement on the near horizon. I, After nine years of paying for me to be educated, the Jesuits deserve some hard work out of me and hopefully they're they're going to get it, you know, but I um, definitely feel, you know, looking back that... Uh, um, everything led to the next thing. Everything opened the door to what kind of followed. I even feel that God was very generous with me because there was a small window of time in New York City where I got to know Jesuits in Manhattan and even thought about joining the East Coast province and the job offer from Martin Sheen came and kind of pulled me in the other direction. I sort of think God let me investigate every last thing I was interested in that wasn't following him in a priestly life so that I so that he would never have to hear me lie in bed going, but if I'd only gone to L.A., the one thing I wanted to do, you know. God doesn't like a complainer, right? So. I don't think he wants a complainer. And he, he sort of let me exhaust every idea I had for what else I might do that wasn't becoming a priest. And having done that, I, I really felt very... Um, uh, both eager and ready to kind of step up and, and see what Jesuit formation would look like. Yeah. Well, so I know one of the key moments, right, uh, in Jesuit formation for many Jesuits is the the poverty pilgrimage. And and my understanding is, it sounds like you traveled a very long way. So can you talk us a little bit about, A, what the pilgrimage is, and then B, um, a little bit about your own experience? Sure. Uh, that, that was a very formative time for me in the novitiate the first two years of our being jesuits uh they have us um 
uh, try out. We experience a lot of different things, you know, work in hospitals, work in prisons, uh, you know, go to large communities. But uh, since St. Ignatius started the Jesuits, there's been this sort of period of time where Jesuits go out on a poverty pilgrimage, uh, sort of like a month of uh, put $20 in your hand, tell you to go out and come back in 30 days with the experiences you've had. You know, one of the catches as we understood it was you just don't tell anyone you're a Jesuit and you just kind of see what happens. Um, the idea behind it is sort of, you know, we'll be spending a lot of our lives helping the poor, but it's very good to kind of know what the poor feel themselves uh, when they're out uh, just trying to get through a day and, and get from one place to another. So they poverty pilgrimages these days are mostly poverty experiments. So you'll get assigned to, say, a homeless shelter or an addiction center. But another guy in the novitiate and I both really wanted to do it old school, and we wanted to be given permission to go out. And we had a new novice master who was like, you know, I think maybe we'll just assign you and, and, and stick with this experiment idea. And so he said no to us at first. And then I had the idea, what if we went together like the apostles in pairs? And uh, the look on his face, he was like, um, give me some time to discern this. And the, the, the bottom line answer was, yes, you two can go together. So uh, my, my friend Eric uh, had not traveled much in the United States, and I'd gotten around a little bit. I asked him where he'd like to go, and he decided on Boston. I remember saying... Oh, what's in Boston? And he's like, oh, I saw an episode of Cheers once and it seemed like it would be a cool place to to, to investigate. Um, so we got on a Greyhound bus in Los Angeles. Uh, they buy you a one-way ticket. We, we went across the country. It was like three days on a bus. We got out in Boston and then found the nearest homeless shelter where we stayed for three nights. And that was the beginning of, of the pilgrimage. You kind of travel as you collect money from city to city. You make up your own itinerary. Uh, we stayed mostly in homeless shelters and uh, once or twice uh, elsewhere um, and you know you kind of see what each day has to bring and it was while at the time I thought it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life I look back on it and it was absolutely one of the most graced experiences because you don't have much else to do but trust God you know uh, that that he's going to take care of you day after day you also meet some pretty amazing people too it always sounds very hard to me whenever I hear Jesuits describe it. I'm always like, oh, man, that sounds sounds real hard. But it sounds like you also really, um, I don't want to say game the system, but I feel like one way, a one-way bus ticket, and you said, I want to go as far as the bus can take me. That was pretty good, right? As opposed to like, just hey, like listen, to the city. <laughs> absolutely, because I've got to tell you, like for the three days we were on the bus, like I felt like we were kind of catching our breath, you right. know, because if someone had like dropped us off in East LA and said, you're starting right now, I'd be like, wait, right now? You know, but on the bus, we kind of had time to... to look out the window, go through uh, some beautiful parts of the country. And, and, you know, eventually we did land. So when we got out in Boston and realized, okay, now it's time to start, it was scary. But um, we totally had some time to pray before yeah. it began in earnest, which was good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd probably be like, all right, I'm ready to get off this bus now. I'll walk back if I have to. I should tell you that I have a friend who, you know, joined, uh, he's no longer a Jesuit, but he joined in what was the Chicago province at the time. I remember him telling about the poverty pilgrimage. And my memory is they drove him out in the country and dropped him off, like not at midnight, but, you know, they <laughs> drove him out in the country, dropped him off. I, I don't remember anything else about the story except thinking, I would never become a Jesuit for that reason alone. <laughs> like, I, I couldn't do it. Like, you know, and then you join and it's not the first thing you do. You know, you get through the 30-day uh, spiritual exercises. And if I can go 30 days in silence, I could felt like I could do anything, you know. So <laughs> my, my, my thinking shifted uh, after the time I was in the novitiate. Because once upon a time, I thought I could never do that. And 
and I surprised myself, you know, I know. we made it. <laughs> we all rise to the challenge, right? What were, um, or some other memorable moments of your formation, things that you're like, oh man, this is a cool experience. You know, um, I, I would have to say that along with the 30-day the silent retreat and the poverty pilgrimage, working for JRJI uh, when I was uh, in L.A. was probably the most transformative of, of the experiences. Uh, that's Jesuit Restorative Justice. And so uh, Father Mike Kennedy, who uh, kind of gave that organization its legs, was our mentor. He took us into Juvenile Hall. Uh, we began meeting a lot of different guys from all over uh, the state of California and just began Beginning to kind of see that world through the lens of restorative justice was very powerful for me and is probably as big a reason as any as to, you know, how and why I raised my hand to go back into that line of work uh, in the Pacific Northwest. So JRJI Northwest, where I'll start working in August, is a newer organization uh, and is, um, is one I'll be, you know, contributing a hand to helping uh, expand up north. But uh, doing that prison work when I was a novice uh, was very, very powerful for me, like I said. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit more um, a, about like what, what will you be doing in your, in your new assignment? What will the day-to-day -day look like? And then for folks that might not have um, uh, as kind of clear of an idea of, of the difference between restorative justice and, and retributive justice, um, what, how are those things different and, 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 and kind of what, what does the work of restorative justice look like? Yeah, I, uh, those are all good questions. Um, to the first question, uh, I think I'm probably going to find out on the ground what a lot of the day-to-day <laughs> -day work will look like. You know, the prisons in Washington state that we'll be visiting, the state and federal prisons, they've been closed due to COVID for a long time, so they're just starting to open up. Uh, I've paid one visit uh, with our chaplain to Monroe Con Correctional Facility, and you know they haven't had visitors for a couple of years, but eventually we'll be leading retreats there, Jesuit retreats. Uh, that will be a big part of the work now that I'm ordained a priest, I'll be doing sacramental work. So saying masses, hearing confessions, um, that'll be a big part of what we're doing. We'll also be working with other Catholic chaplains. So uh, they'll no doubt have programs that we'll be lending a hand with and, and they seem eager to help us out with ours. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of new things. We're also putting together a board of directors. Uh, there is a board, but, you know, continuing to build that up. Um, and, you know, restorative justice, I think, is just, you know, primarily, as I see it, about healing, uh, you know, trying to get uh, prisoners who, uh, you know, inmates who have often made some terrible mistakes to kind of uh, consider those and 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 find themselves on a, a road of, of some healing and restoration. And then when the time feels right, maybe connecting with those people they've hurt and, you uh, figuring out what forgiveness looks like and acceptance and, and all of that. Um, that's a little further than I've gone down the road. So, you know, those experiences when they come will be new to me, but it's definitely, you know, meant to be um, uh, a, pic a picture that includes um, connection and forgiveness and healing and um, accounting and so forth. Those, those things all sound so um, kind of fundamental to our Catholic faith too, right? That no one is Absolutely. beyond redemption. That's right. That's why I'm always fascinated by kind of restorative justice because it's such a such a paradigm shift. I feel like for us, just kind of living our lives in society, but it really should be so uh, second nature for us as we think about our faith lives. And, and there's such a disconnect. I feel like. 
Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, you know, the last class I took at, at JST before I finished up theology school was a spirituality of the earth class. Um, and, uh, you know, which was a great class, but uh, I had to give a sermon. I was inspired by some things in the class. And I said for me that one of the things I find hardest about going into prisons as a, as a Jesuit and, and now, now as a Jesuit priest is there really are no consolations from nature in prison. You know, it's fluorescent lighting, it's, it's heavy air conditioning, there's no plants, nobody has as a pet. There aren't any trees growing inside of the cells. So it's really you and the person and God there with you. And people can really get stuck in a place of thinking they are beyond forgiveness. Um, and it's a place where, you know, without the consolations of nature, I find the devil has an even stronger hand to really, um, you know, convince people I'm a terrible human being and I don't deserve even the consideration for forgiveness. How you help someone unpack that kind of thinking requires a lot of grace and work of the Holy Spirit and uh, good teammates, which I certainly will have in that work. But, um, you know, it's not like we, we Jesuits are always looking for God in all things. When you're out in the world, you can go sit under a tree and really kind of feel God moving in the wind and the sun, you know, a little bit of rain, all that helps. But in the prisons, like, it's really you and the person and... Um, and the Holy Spirit. So it's a different kind of challenge, you know? Yeah. I wonder if um, there's kind of anything from that, your creative background that comes into play when you're doing restorative justice work. You know, I'll tell you the biggest thing, because, uh, you know, I feel like I've got my hand tied behind my back in a lot of ways. I'm one of the few Jesuits on the West Coast who doesn't know Spanish. That's that's that, that's not a good calling card for vocations. The German I know has never come in handy when I go to Germany. <laughs> my German friends want to practice their English. I mean, I don't even get to practice my German that much. But, uh, you know, you go in the cells and a lot of people would like to talk to you in Spanish. That's not something I'm always able to do. I don't come from a background that's similar to a lot of the men who I encounter. And so, you know, they're looking to see how authentic you are. And they, they want to know how, how honest you are. And because I really feel... Uh, like a phony a lot of the times, I'll just laugh about it and sort of be like, I'm from Indiana. And so I'm about as far from, you know, the, the world of LA as I could be. And right away, they're like, okay, you're being honest, like we can start there. And so I find, you know, when I think about, you know, the background I have in entertainment and, um, uh, you know, the theater in particular, if you can bring some humor into it, which starts with being able to laugh at yourself, um, I've had some pretty amazing conversations start that way, as opposed to coming in like you know it all or uh, that you've been around the block and you can understand these people's lives who you haven't even met yet. So I try to I try to start with a, a laugh of some kind if I can. It doesn't always work and it's often at my expense, but uh, I have found that humor in prisons can go a long way to just beginning a conversation with someone you're meeting for the first time. Yeah, that's probably good advice for all of us. You know, how can we just start conversations with laughter and uh, and authenticity as opposed to uh, going in and be like, I have the answer to this question. You haven't even asked it yet. <laughs> so. <laughs> and it's always a danger because, I mean, I think it comes from a very natural human impulse to want to look like you know what you're doing. It puts other people at their ease. They're like, oh, this person knows what they're up to. But even in these first weeks as a priest, I'll be at the altar and get something backwards. And I'll just tell people like, I'm going to do that again. I got it wrong. And people will laugh if you can just kind of own it and, and be fun about it and not burst into tears. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which hasn't happened either at the altar or in prison. But just to say that I think, I think people want to see that you can uh, laugh at yourself. And when they see that that's true, they can laugh with you and 
even at you and it's it's okay <laughs> it's okay yeah no it's it's good advice so as yeah. you as you kind of settle into your your new jesuit priesthood uh lifestyle uh, what, what are you looking forward to you know in your jesuit life what are your what are you hoping for for the global society what are your what are your big dreams and aspirations you know uh again a great question and it's something i'm thinking about a lot more because i just feel like i have been a student for a long time and as a student you know you're you're listening you're absorbing you're taking it in like a sponge suddenly people are coming to me like you know father what do you think about this or you know father where do you stand on on that and suddenly i'm like oh gosh i need to either have an opinion or get better at hiding my opinion you know when people <laughs> come to me but to answer your question you know i think there is a profound curiosity that catholics have especially in our country about what the future looks like you know mm. uh is it time to begin ordaining women if it's not like where are the priests going to be coming from uh in the future are we going to be welcoming more priests from other countries or older priests or or married priests uh, and if we do what should our, our, our liturgies and our gathering look like? Is it okay if I continue to Zoom from home, even though, uh, you know, the worst of COVID may be behind us? Uh, people have a lot of questions about, um, you know, what their faith might or should look like, and a lot of questions about raising their kids in the faith and what that should look like, too. So I find myself as a Jesuit both wanting to uh, listen really carefully to what it is people are asking, and then when it comes to moving ahead, uh, just really a company in a way that's personal and genuine and authentic. I don't have the answers. You know, I don't, I don't know how things should look. I don't have the power to affect those changes if I wanted to. But I do think people want to feel uh, a company, which is what I've always felt Jesuit life is all about. You know, uh, men for and with others, you know, we're, we're here with you marching the same road and, and, and keeping each other company. Um, and so I just find myself more curious or curious in a different way than I was in theology school. That was all like, let me get this church history straight exactly, you know? <laughs> and now it's like, you know, just really trying to figure out where the people of God are because uh, some days they can feel all over the map and then you wonder what the challenge is of, of gathering people together and um, trying to build up unity in the church. Uh, it's they're interesting questions, so, uh, and they feel a little different when yeah. you're ordained. Yeah, yeah, you're at the front of the altar. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a great, it's a great note to end on. This idea of, of how can we remain curious? How can we yep. accompany one another? Um, and again, I go back to the idea of authenticity and humor. I think those are all good things yeah. for us as a church. <laughs> you know, as uh, you know, this week has been a lot of firsts for me. I never thought I would have to do a mass in Spanish. Like I said, I don't speak Spanish, but they were like, they're like, it's not a big deal if you if you can't do it, we'll just cancel the mass. And I'm like, oh no no no, you can't do that. So when I was up there, you know, you know, saying the creed in Spanish, I thought this isn't quite where I thought I would be. The next day, I had to do my first mass for kids, which actually was harder oh. than doing a mass in Spanish. And the reason I bring it up is kids maybe even more than prisoners can tell if you're being authentic mm. and they will show you if they if they think you're funny like if you're not they're not going to laugh and everything so i was up there and i just was as honest as i could be and um i kept in mind a, a, a line that billy wilder the director has he's like you know there are 10 commandments the first nine are don't be boring <laughs> and and so i i was determined not to be boring and i won't get into what my sermon was like but i think i came through it okay you know you you got to meet kids here. with authenticity that's right and and humor and 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 the joyfulness of the spirit so um i have felt that at work which i'm grateful for that's awesome father joe thank you for joining us on amdg we hope you come back thank you it was great to be here thanks for having me 
AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C., and occasionally in my basement. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Jordan Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leepsch, Beggy Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocations promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.